My name is Chad Helmer, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be here with you tonight. Grateful uh, to continue our series. I realize I get up here a couple times a semester, and I don't have the opportunity to introduce you to people who I know and love dearly. So I want to show you a couple family photos. Um, uh-oh, uh-oh, not too fast. Um, uh, my wife, Christy, and my daughter, Lydia. Um, Lydia has a reasonable bedtime as an almost uh, five-year-old. She turns five in a couple weeks, and so uh, my wife is normally at home with her by the time we make it to 180 on Thursday nights. Um, but she is a precious gift to us. I love being a dad. I love being a husband. Um, and I uh, sometimes run the risk of showing too many pictures of my daughter sometimes. But she's, she's adorable to me. And um, a little bit about my family. Uh, my my wife, she's, she has many great traits about her, so many things to love. Um, one of the things that people often don't know about her is she is an avid, avid traveler. A weekend in Athens, uh, we, we sometimes say just Athens is kind of where we pitch our tent, but we're citizens of the world, okay? We live everywhere, and so she loves to travel, and, um, oh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I gotta get organized. Um, but um, she loves to travel. And so, and then it works out because I really love fine arts. Um, and so uh, often, it's not unusual that I will, I will find a piece of art that I'm really interested in. And Christy will say, well, let's plan a trip to go see it. And so we've gotten to see some really incredible art and go to some of the world's most famous art museums over the course of our, uh, this summer will be 18 years of marriage. And so um, my wife loves planning trips. She loves traveling. And, um, and so we've gotten to go to the Louvre in Paris, the Afuzi and the Academia in Florence, some of these incredible museums um, where you see some of these paintings from the great Renaissance masters. And, of course, I already uh, spoiled the first one. Um, and um, so we, I can't remember. Maybe in 2017 we were in Paris and got to see the Mona Lisa. Everyone realized it's, it's much smaller than you realize. It's like this big. Um, and so... Um, but uh, my wife will make these plans, and we'll go see things. I promise we were there. It wasn't just a photo I grabbed online. Um, but um, but here's, here's why I bring it up. Because tonight, we are talking about fine art. Um, we're going to talk about fine art tonight. And that may surprise you, but we are in a series called Guarding the Deposit, Doctrine and Devotion. And one of the things we've been talking about is how God calls us to know him better by understanding our faith in a deeper way. And so each week we're focusing on a different doctrine of the Christian faith. And then what we're doing is we're asking, well, how can we keep or guard that doctrine? And how does it help us know God in a deeper way and worship him more fully? And so I'm really excited about our topic tonight. We're talking about the doctrine of humanity. In other words, the nature and purpose of humanity as God has created us. Um, but as excited as I am about tonight, I'm also a little nervous, and I want to explain why. Um, two weeks ago, Casey Hoffman talked about the Bible and its authority, and I'll tell you, that's a really important topic, but normally when I'm running through my news feed on my phone, I don't see people talking about the authority of the Bible too much. Last week, Clay Selway talked to us about the nature of God and his triunity and his unity, and um, that's really important and really complicated, but... When I scroll through my news feed, now I'm a bit of a theology nerd, so sometimes I see this, but most of the time I don't see people talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. But when we begin to ask the question, what is a human being? And what is human nature? What I want to suggest is it is the theological question of our generation. And so um, I'm a little nervous, in here, and I want to just be honest about why, because, because much of what we talk about when we talk about being a human being 
lingering in the background, inextricably wrapped up with it, are some of the most raging political questions of our day. And I have good news for you. I don't want to talk about those. <laughs> um, and you probably don't want me to talk about them either. Um, so I'm not talking about any politics tonight. I'm just talking about the doctrine of humanity and the Christian faith as it's laid out in the Bible. And so um, you'll inevitably hear some of those political debates going on in the background. I'm not talking about them on purpose. I don't want to talk about them. Um, I'm talking about the Bible, historic Christian doctrine. And I would say if I were, if I were going to talk about those things, they'd be a very different kind of talk, honestly a pretty bad one. Because I think most of those things are way better had in face-to-face -face conversation in dialogue where we speak and we listen. And so I'm not talking about any of that tonight, but I realize even as though I don't think there's anything I'm going to say tonight that's controversial when we talk about what a human being is, um, I, want, I want us to engage in a kind of social contract together, if you wouldn't mind. Because um, one of the things about me, I actually don't like conflict. I'm, I like my life pretty harmonious. There are some people that just love it. I'm, I'm not that person. Um, so my, my invitation would be is, even if I'm done tonight and you have questions or you're frustrated or you think I'm dead wrong about something, that's okay. But would you come talk to me afterwards? I'm really nice. I don't bite. Um, my daughter thinks I'm really tender and sweet most of the time, okay? And so, um, so I would just invite you, have a conversation with me, okay? I wouldn't want to, my, my prayer all week has been that I wouldn't be misunderstood. So I want to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time, and then we're going to talk about what a human being is. Pretty straightforward. Father, we ask for your help. I need your help. Help me to speak clearly to my friends here tonight. Lord, I ask that you would give them ears to hear and make them attentive. I pray that they would hear clearly what I am saying and what I'm not saying. And Lord, I pray that uh, even as we reflect on this really, really important doctrine, and even, even as the night ends somewhat unresolved and we anticipate next week, Lord, I pray that you would press upon us this incredible truth about what you say, about who we are and what we mean to you. Help us to understand that well tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there are really two pillars of the Christian doctrine of humanity, two main things. And if you remember these two things, I will tell you it makes an incredible amount of sense of the world that we live in. And the first one is this. It's that because men and women are created in the image of God, human beings are marked with an infinite dignity and worth and value. Because human beings are created in the image of God, we're marked with infinite dignity and worth and value. You see, as God's special and very good creation, humani uh, humanity, we're endowed with this kind of dignity, this kind of worth, that's far above all the rest of God's creation. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to have just part of this up here on the screen. We aren't going to be able to read all of it because my talk is too long. And so, um, but... Let, let me just read from Genesis chapter 1. And maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with the background. If you've ever read Genesis 1 before, God creates in the first five days. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the sea and the sky. He creates the plants and the trees and the animals. He populates this whole world um, with stars, planets, everything. And then when he comes to the sixth day, he creates humanity. And one of the things that's clear is that this is the pinnacle of God's creation. So let me read. Pay attention uh, to what God says about humanity and pay attention to what commands God gives humanity as we read this. Starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Oh, 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 my goodness. Where am I? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Created them. And then verse 28. Uh, yeah. And, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so there's so much we could talk about here, so much. But here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the nature of humanity and on the purpose of humanity that God lays out from the very beginning of creation. The nature of humanity. Humanity is created in the image of God. And this is no small thing. Um, it's, it's, it's such a significant thing that theologians um, who are prone to sort of uh, technical language prefer to talk about it in the Latin, to set it off as something special and specific. Often they just refer to the imago Dei, the image of God. Um, and this is what sets us apart as human beings from the rest of God's creation. We're the pinnacle, the height, and it endows every human being with infinite dignity, worth, and value. So that means no matter what, no matter what race or ethnicity, no matter the age, no matter how differently abled or impaired, no matter how rich or how poor, no matter the size of a human being, the level of development of a human being, the age of a human being, or even the dependency, how much we're dependent on others, no matter what, if it's created in the image of God, and this is talking from, from the fetus that's in the womb of the mother to the geriatrics, to the, the, the widow who's in the, the retirement home, uh, you know, whose body is failing her. Every one of them endowed with infinite dignity and worth and value. The high-functioning CEO or the disabled and severely impaired child. No matter black or white, female or male, free or prisoner, every human being, if it has human DNA, if it came from a human being, one of the things we know is it's created in the image of God with infinite dignity and worth and value. So what does it mean to be in the, made in the image of God? Um, this is, I, I probably shouldn't do this, but um, uh, theologians have kind of marked off three different categories of what it means to be um, uh, made in the image of God. And there's this sort of, uh, it's kind of this tired theological debate, but there are categories that are uh, what are called ontological. Um, this has to do with kind of our substance, like when uh, I, there's something about me that is made up in a similar kind of way that God is made up. Maybe, maybe it's my shape or my form or something like that. Um, there are uh, functional kind of families of understanding about this. In other words, how we function. Uh, maybe it's our ability to reason cognitively. Maybe it's our ability to, um, to create things. Maybe it's that command to have dominion that we're going to look at in a second and to rule justly over. Um, and then there are also relational categories, uh, kind of families of arguments uh, that, uh, forgive the handwriting, um, that uh, you know, may, maybe we're made in the image of God, and what that means is we can relate to one another in a way that the animals can't, or we can relate to God in ways that the animals can't. Um, here's what I think. I think it's probably some combination of all of those things. I don't think there's a lot of value in kind of parsing out which one it is, but I think what's more helpful is thinking about it um, in the sense that we're, God says that we, more than, more than the other creatures, are like him in a really, really significant way. And part of what that, you know, I, I think about when our daughter was born almost five years ago, um, uh, you know, the grandparents would say, well, does she look more like her mom or does she look more like her dad? And, um, fellows, the answer is always, 
She's beautiful, and she looks like her mom. Um, and so you, that's free advice, no charge. Remember that. Um, but here's what it means is there's something about when God created us. It's like, you're like me. There's something about you that, that's like me in a way that the animals aren't, and you have infinite dignity and worth because of that. You're the finest piece of art that God ever created. A masterpiece exceeding all others. No, there's no Mona Lisa, no David, no Venus, no Pieta that even comes close to what God has created when he created you. Not the person sitting next to you, but you. Nature. Purpose. Purpose. Humanity is created to multiply and to justly rule over the world. Did anybody catch that? It's pretty crazy. The first thing, it's amazing, the first thing God commands humanity to do after they're created is sexual. He says it's oriented toward procreation. He says, it's as though he says, go, pair up, and make more works of art in my image. And as we read on into chapter 2, uh, we get that that's in the context of marriage, and that gets laid out in chapter 2. Um, that's a different talk. But for now, the humanity, humanity is entrusted uh, to make more images of art and to justly rule over and govern all of God's creation. Do you see that? Um, have dominion over the fish of the sea. Subdue them. All of this. In the picture that we get when we zoom back and we look at the first six, uh, first six days of creation is that God has created this world. Um, and it, there's this perfect order and structure to it. And then he puts humankind in the center of this world as his greatest creation. And he says, take care of this. Maintain the order. Rule over it justly. Manage it well. That's the big picture. It's as if we're born kings and queens, each one of us, endowed with unbelievable worth and dignity and value. And then we've been given a kingdom to justly rule over, to have dominion over creation, plants, animals, people, the things that we produce. We're called to govern over them and rule them in a way that maintains God's very good order and purpose of creation. Some of you are already thinking, you're anticipating point two, we don't, that we don't do this very well. But before we get there, I want to say, one, that this explains Christian efforts that go all the way back to the first century to protect and preserve the dignity of human life. One of the things that, that, we, that the Bible teaches is that everyone, everyone is endowed with this kind of worth. And I just want to say, I'm so incredibly proud of our community because one of our partnering churches, Christ Community Wesleyan, is putting on this event, Night to Shine, and so many of our staff and students are participating where they're planning a prom in partnership with the Tim Tebow Foundation to, to take uh, severely handicapped and disabled people out and, and, and give them a prom that shows them the incredible dignity and worth that they have in the eyes of God. It's an awesome, awesome thing. But the real question is, do you believe that it matters that you're created in the image of God? Do you believe that, you're that, that you have that kind of worth, that you're a masterpiece, an incredible piece of art? Because here's what I think. Maybe you disagree with me, but I sometimes worry that we spend too much time thinking about how to express our identities artistically as though we somehow get to create from the inside out who we are, is that we get to construct our identities ourselves. And I, and I want to say, that you may not realize how incredibly new and rare that is. Um, your grandparents, at least your great-grandparents for sure, maybe even your grandparents, that, that wouldn't make sense to them. <laughs> it just wouldn't historically. It's very new. And the reality is, is instead of thinking about creating ourselves from the inside out, from trying to sort of form ourselves in a particular kind of way, 
I think part of what we need to do is to realize that profoundly, our most foundational identity is that we're made in the image of God. Not from the inside out, but, we're made, but our identity is formed from the outside in, from outside space and time. God has declared us, created us and declared us in his image worth infinite value and worth and dignity. You're already a piece of art. You're already a masterpiece. And when you start to think about my need to customize and tweak and put more art on, um, put more paint on, rather, um, the, uh, remember that you're already a piece of art, despite what mass media or other people would tell you. The other challenge here is when you think about other people, do you think of them as endowed with that same kind of dignity and worth? And the reality is most people would never say it out loud. But in the deep recesses of your heart, do you ever think that other people are less than you? The most common temptation, at least in our day, seems to be people of other races than you. The disabled, the elderly, the unborn, the poor. You see, if everyone shares infinite dignity, value, and worth that you enjoy... How should we treat other people? And the fascinating thing is when you look at some of Jesus' most memorable statements, Luke 6, 31, the, the golden rule, do unto other people as you would have them do unto you, we find the foundation for that in the image of God. When Jesus, uh, when, when Jesus tells other you know, he answers, what is the greatest commandment? To love God, and then he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That you owe other people the dignity and value and worth that God gives them. And even though we may not ever say it out loud, we're prone to think less of other people. So, as God's greatest masterpiece created on the sixth day, human beings are endowed with infinite dignity, worth, and value far above all of God's creation. But that's not all that has to be said, because I said there are two kind of pillars to the Christian doctrine of humanity. That's the first, and the second is kind of the sad side of the story. It's because of sin... Human nature is marred by inconceivable misery, corruption, and brokenness that extends to every aspect of creaturely existence. See, the reality is sin has marred and broken the way we're made in the image of God. It hasn't removed the image of God. We're still made in the image of God. But it has corrupted, polluted, and broken that image so as to leave no part of our lives unaffected. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't good but it doesn't mean that any good that we experience in life is by the mercy of God. He spared us from the effects of sin in the fall. Now, if we had time to read Genesis 3, we would. But in Genesis 3, um, what we get is uh, God, I'll give you the quick summary. Uh, God puts Adam and Eve at the center of the universe, and he tells them to rule it justly. And he says, there's one thing you can't do. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, you will surely die. And then this sort of serpent figure slithers in, right? We know the scene, and says, well, did God surely say that you would die? Did he surely say? Um, And so what happens is Adam and Eve both eat from the tree anyways, and in that moment, God's very good world, that ordered, structured cosmos, starts to come undone. Adam and Eve hide from God. They experience shame for the first time. God's word proves to be true. Everything then sort of starts to orient toward death and the final destiny of Adam and Eve and each one of us. Death's corrupting influence plays out really in three ways. And we don't have time to, I wish we had time to look at the passages for each of these. But I'll give you the quick version and a way to help you remember. What are the effects of the fall? Here's what it does. It does three things. First, it affects our horizontal relationships. And you can read this right in Genesis 3. Um, My relationship with other people, their relationship with me, interpersonal relationships now become tainted by the fall. They become difficult. 
There's strife and enmity. Our vertical relationship downward, you could think of it, humanity's relationship with God's creation, with the earth, with the world that he's created, is now corrupted. Um, and then the third way is our vertical relationship upward, that now because of sin, our relationship with God is fractured. It's, it, we're now alienated from God, separated from God's special place. Now, again, that doesn't mean there can't be any good, but here's what the results are. The result is that we are creatures of incredible dignity and worth and value who are also badly broken, marred, and polluted by sin. It affects every relationship we have, every task that we attempt, every motive and thought. The stain of sin leaves nothing untouched. Um, it was in 1956, actually, that this vandal kind of came strolling into the museum and chucked a bunch of acid on the Mona Lisa. Do you know this? It's been attacked, like, uh, vandalized, like, three or four times. Or I think two were attempts. That's why it's behind bulletproof glass now, because the reality is, is, is it's, it can be damaged, even though it's a masterpiece. And friends, this is where I think the Christian doctrine of humanity makes an incredible amount of sense of the world that we live in. Because when I talk to friends, when I read the news, or when I look at my own life, there's a theme that runs throughout. And it's the fracturing, it's the fracturing of the world by sin. Interpersonal relationships are hard. Just listen to the list. Do you have any complicated family relationships? Has a miscommunication or a misunderstood, uh, misunderstanding complicated friendship? Are there petty jealousies, rivalries, prejudices? Do men abuse and mistreat women? Do women exploit and manipulate men? Do friendships sometimes reach irreparable ends? Do spouses divorce? Children suffer? Do you know good people who just can't seem to work together? Is power abused? Does authority uh, turn to control? Has sex, that first commandment that God gave, uh, uh, you know, that, that human sexuality in general, has all of that become corrupted and abused, separated from its procreative ends that we see in the passage? Do your best intentions sometimes backfire or blow up on you? Friends, all interpersonal relationships are hard because of sin and the fall. What about our relationship with creation? It's tainted by the fall. Rather than stewarding and justly ruling over creation like God called us to, too often we turn against the good world that God has entrusted to us. And not only that, but God's good creation, just like he said it would, turns against us. Famine, flood, drought, fire, and even earthquake. Things that are contrary to that good order and good world that God established. And then what about our vertical relationship with God? Tainted by sin, alienated humanity from God, we no longer dwell in paradise. Because of sin, humanity is turned away from God and in disobedience to an all-holy, all-perfect, all-loving God, we find ourselves as a human race cut off from that holiness, perfection, goodness, and love. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like the world that we live in. I feel that every day. And that's where all of us find ourselves, unspeakable dignity, value, and worth, but damaged nonetheless from the effects of sin and fall. So what do we do about the brokenness of the human nature? Um, I have a couple of practical suggestions that I think are really important, and then there's going to be a bit of a cliffhanger to next week, okay? Practically speaking, um, first of all, the goal is not to look at the rest of the broken world and to condemn it and judge it. Rather, one, I think this invites us to be extraordinarily suspicious of ourselves, 
of our own sin and our own mixed motives. Really, I, just so you know, I, I tell people this often. I don't think there is such a thing as a pure motive. Even when I go to do the very best thing I want, you know, that I think is good and right, I can't help but wonder who sees me do it. How do I stack up next to somebody else? Well, I know that person isn't doing what I'm doing. I think pure motives actually don't exist this side of the fall. Second, I think each one of us needs to practice a ruthless moral self-examination where we ask ourselves, in what ways are sin and fall corrupting my relationships in ways that I don't even see or understand? And then thirdly, I would say allow the sin that you see and the brokenness of the world that you experience to remind you of your own deep-seated sinfulness and your desperate need for grace, mercy, and transformation. Um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of, probably the most famous Puritan preacher in the United States, um, over the course of his lifetime, he wrote 70 resolutions, and they are challenging to read. I made it a part of my life every Sunday to read them for a little while. Um, and so number eight, here's what he says, and I think, I, I think about this often. He says, I'm resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or same failings as others. And then sort of, and then going on, resolve that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Now that sounds heavy, but to conclude here, here's what I want to do. I want to point out these two different pillars of the Christian doctrine of humanity. Some of you are here tonight, and you desperately need to remember point number one. You desperately need to know and deeply believe. You are an incredible work of art. No matter what anyone tells you, no matter how you feel from one day to the next, no matter what kinds of things you were told as a child, no matter what mass media might, uh, might make you think or feel about yourself that you don't measure up, one of the things this passage tells us is you are incredible. You are absolutely incredible, and there's nothing on the face of planet Earth that matters to God as much as you do. Some of you don't, still don't believe it. Some of you have a really hard time believing it. But I'm telling you, it's right there in the text. You're created in the image of God with infinite value and worth. Some of you maybe. Maybe you don't have a hard time believing that about yourself, but it's someone else. Someone else you think less of you. Uh, you. You think less than yourself. And maybe you need to be reminded of that tonight. And then on the second point, some of you are here tonight and desperately need to learn, know, and believe number two. Be weary of thinking too highly of ourselves. Be weary of comparing ourselves to other people. Remember that sin mars our very best intentions. And so the question becomes, do you use the brokenness of the world to remind you of your incredible need for grace, incredible need for the gospel, and what Jesus has done for you on the cross? You see, humanity is created with infinite dignity, worth, and value, but sin, both the sin of Adam and Eve, as well as our own, is now the cause of brokenness, pain, misery, sadness, corruption, and death. And the reality is things fall apart. And where does that leave us? Well, that leaves next week where Jason is going to uh, come up here and talk to us about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us to make this mess right. Let me pray. Father, I pray 
that my friends here would know the incredible value and dignity and worth that they are to you. Lord, I thank you for Seth's testimony. Thank you for, thank you for the way you, you delivered him and the way that you've since reminded of him of his value and worth to you. Father, I pray that each one of us here would know that incredible dignity and worth. And Father, I also pray that we would not be, not be naive. That as we look around at the world, Lord, would you remind us of our desperate need for you, the brokenness that we see all around us. And would you move us to act, to right the world, to rule over it justly, to do what you've called us to do, and to be a community that, uh, that loves Jesus and connects other people to him. And we pray this in his name. Thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the 180 Podcast, a production of Crew in Southeast Ohio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like, a share, or leave an encouraging comment, and that will go a long way toward helping others hear about the podcast. The podcast isn't the only thing that we do. Whether you're a student living on campus or if you're still at home studying virtually, we'd encourage you to check us out on social media to hear more about what's going on. You can follow us on Instagram at crew at OU. Or to learn more about who we are and what we do, head over to our website, crew at ou.org. We'd encourage you if you visit the site to complete our involvement form to get more connected to all the things that are happening. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next Thursday for another episode of the 180 Podcast.